Welcome to the Digital Deal Podcast, the series where we talk about how new technologies reshape our democracies and how artists and critical thinkers can help us make sense of these changes. Welcome to the Digital Deal Podcast, the series where we talk about how new technologies reshape our democracies and how artists and critical thinkers can help us make sense of these changes. My name is Anna Carabella, and today I'm joined by Hito Steil and Karen Howe. Hito is a German filmmaker and writer whose prolific work occupies a highly discursive position between the fields of art, philosophy and politics, and is also a deep exploration of late capitalism, social, cultural and financial imaginaries. Karen is an award-winning journalist covering the impacts of artificial intelligence on society. She's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and was formerly a foreign correspondent covering China Tech for The Wall Street Journal, as well as a senior editor for AI at MIT Technology Review. As the title of today's episode, Data Lords, suggests, we try to draw a parallel between the old capitalist practices like primitive accumulation or accumulation by dispossession, even colonialism, and the datification of everything that we're witnessing today. This inevitably brings up the question of ownership, thus bringing us close to this year's Ars Electronica Festival topic, Who Owns the Truth?, where we also happen to be recording this episode. Can truth be owned? Can we think of who the truth owners are? Or is it maybe more of a case that what is owned is the raw material, the data, in which case, what does that make us humans? Now, Karen, Hito, thank you so much for joining us for the discussion. Thank you so much for having us. As I started thinking about this, two cliches that we often hear came to my mind. Data is new oil, and if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. One speaks about the value of data, the other one about the value and commodification of human experience that is being turned into product that can be sold and implicitly owned. Do you think these cliches simply obscure different relationships between human experience and life and data and of course, those who act as rightful owners of these commodities. Sure. I actually, I still find these cliches quite useful in part because I feel like the data is the new oil one in particular is a gift that keeps on giving. I've been spending a lot of time recently researching the uh, the need for mining and uh, the emissions generation of data centers, which becomes, you know, a really... You, the data is new oil becomes like a really great parallel for understanding the environmental impact of data production and AI production. So I don't, maybe it obscures the relationship in some ways, but I still find it helpful in kind of framing the parallels between what we see in AI now and industries past. And, and similarly with, you know, if you're not paying, then you're the product. I do think it really succinctly continues to capture what we're seeing with new AI technologies today. And sometimes I, I feel like the conversation now with um, with the new version of AI that we're seeing today, sort of a lot of people have forgotten all of the conversations that we had before about like critiquing how AI should be developed and the, the limitations of the technology. So it, I, in a way, I feel like having these cliches to remind us by the way, these things haven't gone away. These are themes that we should still be thinking about is, is useful for me. So in a sense, they're useful in identifying the patterns that we kept repeating yeah, and we exactly. keep repeating. Exactly. 
I also think that they are still quite useful. I think the second one, data is the new all, I think is still very much relevant if we think through the infrastructure of digital industries. Especially in Austria, I think we should even modify it is to the question whether data is the new gas. Because if we look at gas pipelines and the modes of extraction and the dependency on gas, especially in Austria from Russian gas and its implication on the war machine, we see that it's very, very tricky to be unilaterally dependent on one sort of, you know, infrastructure, which is extremely um, unequal, you know, and, and, and lopsided. So in the same way that we are talking about gas pipelines, we should consider data pipelines and also pipelines of digital workflows mm-hmm. as um, infrastructures that can perpetuate dependency and also exploitation. Mm-hmm. The second one, if you're not paying, then you're the product could be now upgraded to if you're not getting paid, then you're the producer, right? Because yeah. this is what's being obscured usually, that the production of data is not, you know, like exploiting a natural resource, but that data is the product of labor, et cetera, et cetera. So if you if you start mentioning manufacturing, then you start thinking about the labor that goes into it. And it's exactly what you were saying, Hito, about where producers, not necessarily products. This production aspect of data being manufactured and produced is actively being obscured, right? Especially if we look at training data sets for so-called artificial intelligence. This is basically where the training data is divorced from its origin, from the people who um, make it in the first place, the people who are represented in it, the people that annotate it, that clean it, etc., etc., but also from looking at the people who are making all of this infrastructure. So basically, training data inside uh, training sets gets rid of basically all the authorship, annotation, origin, etc. It's like a washing. And afterwards, it looks like <laughs> not not necessarily clean, but as some kind of supernatural artificial yeah. general intelligence. But what it does is to basically remove the social connections of all the training data, but also the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Karen, you've written extensively about ghost workers and the perpetuation of colonial practices. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I think um, we just, with the AI industry today, we're just seeing so many patterns where Global North companies are going to the Global South to get their labor and their resources and, and claim ownership over labor and resources that are not theirs to have. And unfortunately, because a lot of Global South countries have underdeveloped economies from the legacies of colonialism, they are in situations where they have these large bases of, of cheap labor and a lot of resources that they're willing to sort of sell to companies because they need the the money and they need um, the opportunity. And so, I, I yeah, I do, I do think that like this, I really love what you said about thinking of labor uh, thinking of the labor and data as production, not just as something, a natural resource to be extracted. That is so true because there's hundreds of thousands of workers around the world, predominantly in the global South, that are part of the manufacturing of this so-called pristine data that then gets fed into these systems. Um, and it, I think the way that these workers are treated and the way that 
the data they're told to process the data also gives us a lot of insight into how these companies think about the role of technology and also about the human experience. Like we're seeing now with uh, workers in Kenya, there's this huge movement uh, among workers that work for the data annotation industry that are starting to organize and starting to demand labor rights because they have not had any kinds of basic minimum protections around their wages or their working hours or their working conditions while working in this industry. And I actually think there is like a perfect parallel between that experience and what we're seeing now with Hollywood protesters and the kind of uh, devaluing of the labor that is happening among writers and actors in Hollywood. So looking towards the workers within the AI industry is sort of a canary in a coal mine for helping us understand then what technology will be developed from this process and how will that technology ultimately affect all of us in with its with its specific worldview. We started speaking about for automation, which is exactly this veiling of the actual quite manual labor that goes into it um, that is just more convenient not to talk about. Can I just add a few things? Thank you so much, Karen, for opening up this huge field of research, which was really Mm -hmm. foundational for me to even, you know, figure out that this was happening. This was so important and so such an important, you know, area of investigation. Now, let me tell you, this has spread much further. For example, within the European Union, we were able to, you know, find out that this kind of ghost work, especially in the form of uh, content management is now also um, applying to people on refugee statuses, for example. You know, migrant legislation or anti-migrant legislation, let's call it, is being exploited to create cheap laborers and also laborers under, let's say, inadequate legal protection to be exploited by data companies. We talk to Syrian refugees, you know, we are, which are now doing content management inside the EU in German workplaces. So I think that this pattern of exploitation, which you have uncovered, is proliferating also into the so-called global north in form of these pockets, pockets of insufficient legislation and labor rights protection. So I think it's super important, you know, to keep monitoring this spread of underpaid professions that benefit the AI industry ultimately. That's such an important point that the like use of refugees and also the use of prisoners. This is starting to happen too. A lot of prisoners are being asked to also provide data annotation services for basically no money because they don't have any other option. I mean, it reminds me of this German professor that I interviewed when I was doing these stories, Florian Alexander Schmidt. He made this really great point. At the time, I was looking at um, how this was playing out in Venezuela when Venezuela was going through a devastating economic crisis. And he said, this is actually a playbook. It's not a coincidence that companies will go to a country in crisis to find this labor. This, like the political incentives, the economic incentives all point them in that direction. And as more crises proliferate around the world, economic crises, climate crises, other types of crises, we will start to see more and more populations kind of fall under this exploitation. The refugees is such a perfect example. Like when you have like geopolitical crisis or climate crisis that creates more refugee populations, that all becomes more labor for the data annotation industry. Let let me give you another example. Recently, we've been talking to people who do this uh, kind of 
annotation labor for self-driving cars, you know. So they are actually in a refugee camp in the Middle East and they have very, very limited mobility. They cannot travel extensively because there is no bus service. It's not that, that they are prisoners, right, but the mobility is extremely limited. But they are being shown uh, images from Cities like Berlin, for example, I mean, we saw our own environment in the images being uh, annotated and they make the mobility of other people possible, right? Or the mobility of self-driving cars. So who is actually driving the cars? In fact, it's the people with extremely reduced mobility, which are also prevented by visa regulations, etc., etc., from even leaving their country, you know, that are enabling other people's so-called mobility. Could we see two layers of this? This is the very obvious colonial pattern that's being replicated. And as you said, Karen, the more you see countries in crisis, the more it will be replicated wherever the crisis is. Could we also see the same sort of pattern in how our day-to-day -day is being treated in terms of us providing data? You know, the day-to-day -day as the new frontier, the new space that's being colonized, whether it's going to the supermarket or whatever activity that we're doing on a daily basis, it seems insignificant, but somehow becomes part of this big data set. Well, I mean, whoever produces data one way or another gets treated like this so-called natural resource, right? I mean, mm. as a filmmaker, <laughs> you know, it's kind of obvious <laughs> to me that any kind of data you yeah. produce, whether it's images or not, ends up as training data and thus basically divorced from your authorship, uh, from any claims to copyright. I'm not an IP person necessarily. I'm fine sharing, you mm -hmm. know, but if I know that this is being used to develop basically models that are actually inflicting harm on other people, yeah. then I'm not okay with that. Yeah, right? and there's yeah. the whole issue of consent and you might be open to share, but... Mm -hmm. For who and to whom and yeah. Yeah, I had um this interview or I did a story as part of my series on anti-colonialism about the Maori people in New Zealand. And there was a group of journalists who ran an organization called Tahiku Media. It was a nonprofit radio station. And they did a lot of work to try and figure out how do you develop AI technologies that are not colonial? Like and a huge part of that was trying to figure out how to preserve consent and agency around data. So one of, the, one of the main leads of that project, he always said data is the final frontier of colonization. Like if we just allow people to take our data and repurpose it for any means, ultimately it always just comes back to harm people like us. And he was speaking as an indigenous person from Hawaii that had moved to uh, New Zealand and his partner was Maori. So it was it was incredible kind of reporting that story because they went through so much painstaking effort to try and figure out how to preserve how like they wanted to develop language technologies, AI language technologies that would help revitalize the Maori language. So they needed the AI technology for um, purposes of also decolonizing. Mm -hmm. um, but they they like wouldn't use any big tech tools. They didn't want to partner with any big tech uh, platforms or anything like that. They were building everything from scratch. And they ended up creating a special like data certificate licensing 
mechanism where anyone who wants to partner with them and use that data to develop their own technologies would have to go through a rigorous application process and review. And it involves all of the elders in the community where they have elder council meetings to discuss every different new application for the data and decide whether or not it will ultimately benefit them or harm them. It also involves compensation to all of the producers of the data. So everyone that they collected data from consented and also documented their name down so that any time their data is used, it should return back to them in some kind of benefit, whether it's the product or the service being developed, being given to them for free or actual compensate, financial compensation. And it just, in watching them re-engineer everything to try and not be colonial or like not perpetuate colonial dynamics made me see even more how much the norm, the global norm around data collection and data use is extremely colonial. And I think that's cutting edge, you know, science and technology to develop new also social forms of sharing and cooperating. Because I guess what you're describing is a form of data commons whereby a common repository of data is held and governed in common. And also there is a kind of constitution made for it and around it and the revenues is probably shared. And that's a really cutting edge, revolutionary, mm. technologically innovative social application, you know. And this is where progress could be, mm. you know, and hopefully will be. But uh, you also see that this whole process of uh, talking to one another and figure out the new rules, etc., etc., is also a labor which is not being acknowledged, right? And it's much simpler and cheaper to simply expropriate data and just privatize them than to go through this painstaking process of acknowledging the cooperative nature of machine learning models and applications. Yeah. And also perhaps not within the interest of the current economic system that yes. we're in which I think is probably the biggest issue because I think we would all perhaps be more willing to take the time and put the effort into figuring out these new models if we knew that we were working in a system that was conducive mm -hmm. to these sort of models, but we're not quite. I think the, the one other dimension that I would add, um, which I don't talk about very often, but uh, it's not just the economic incentive of these companies. It's also the political incentive of, of countries that see AI as some sort of way to derive more state power. And, the, and we're seeing this very much now with the US-China clash. Like the US does not want to even implement data privacy regulations in part because they think that that will somehow weaken their ability to use, to develop AI and derive power from that and continue to be, you know, the, the leading global power against China. And there's just, I think this, this, this persistent desire, not just from global North countries, but you see this in global South as well, even more so where global South governments just have this really deep seated desire to quote unquote, catch up mm -hmm. somehow and to, to participate in this. So when I was interviewing the workers in Kenya, they And they have a lawyer that represents them now trying to help, uh, trying to push legislation through the Kenyan government. And she was saying that this is a huge problem. Like the, le the Kenyan legislators, they don't, they also don't necessarily want to 
give these workers, or they're, they're not that they don't want to, they're worried about implementing labor protections for these workers because then what if the companies go to Uganda instead? What if they go, uh, you know, to Venezuela, back to Venezuela instead? And they want to somehow, in, in providing their country's labor, they're providing their workforce to big tech, they, they frame it as being part of the technology revolution, having a seat at the table. So I think there is a, there are huge political and geopolitical dynamics at play as well that continue to just perpetuate the way that we are developing AI now. It's, it's really hard to stop when both the political and the economic incentives are pointing in the same direction. Like there's really so little incentive right now for countries to regulate certain things because they, they think that somehow that's going to help strengthen themselves, strengthen their economies, like bring benefits to everyone. And I think that is, that's like a narrative that kind of we need to slowly un, unravel. Yeah, I think it's a situation of either all or none. So if it's if it's going to be done, it's got to be done by all. Otherwise, it will always be this, this imbalance um, of power. Yeah, in the meantime, this sort of arms race you're describing is uh, creating a genuinely even more dangerous situation, like the rapid integration of so-called AI mm. into military applications now also being amplified through the Ukraine war, where, you know, companies just barge in with some kind of new solutions. I mean, just imagine chat GPT going to war. You don't really want that, right? I mean, on all fronts, it's nothing that one wants to implement at all, you know, not even not in a hasty way, but that shouldn't be done. And so to speak, in the wake of that sort of sort of technological arms race you're describing, these are the developments that are actually happening right now. To wrap up, I usually ask my guests to give our listeners a bit of a homework and name an article, a research piece or a book, artwork, whatever comes to mind that you've recently come across and you think everyone should know about and is relevant to today's episode topic. Uh, I would recommend a book that I'm reading right now called Power and Progress. It looks at the last 1,000 years of technology development and really questions what what do we actually mean when we say technological progress? Like who is actually getting the progress from technology advancement? And basically in re-examining the last 1,000 years, the authors conclude through like a political economy frame that essentially we've always seen the same story, that it's the people in power that get the progress at the expense of other people. So unless unless everyone else organizes, you know, and claims part of the technological benefits, then it's a different story. But this part is not automatic. Mm -hmm. It's there is no automatic progress for technology to benefit everyone. Yeah, that was also going to be one of my last questions. If you can think of any ways out, I think Ita, you just mentioned organization on every level taxation regulation organization yeah. and the dismantling of this ludicrous narrative of automatic progress through technology is just not working anymore it's also grown so stale i mean we've been hearing it for the past 30 years now or even yeah. thousand more as you yeah. just mentioned no yeah yeah, yeah. i and i think that the, the in the book as uh as the the authors mentioned like labor 
is sort of, it, it cuts across so many things, like actually having labor rights for workers who, like labor rights for the data producers, labor rights for the, the ghost workers, labor rights for all of the other, all of the other things that can essentially be framed as labor in, in the production of this system is actually like one of the baseline things that the, the authors sort of really push for as a way to counterbalance the power that we're creating, which was, it was sort of a new frame for me in thinking about labor as kind of the, the constant minimal unit or like fundamental building block of like so many of the, of the things that we see that AI needs uh, to perpetuate within the industry. So I think, I guess that, that would be sort of like the thing that I would encourage as like an exit route out is first just lay down better labor laws internationally uh, as a way to protect artists' work and as a way to protect the workers within the industry. And we can go from there. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. New episodes of the Digital Deal podcast come out every two months wherever you get your podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe or follow us or share the show with someone you think might like it. The Digital Deal podcast is part of the European Digital Deal, a three-year project co-founded by Creative Europe that investigates the accelerated and often unconsidered adoption of new technologies and their impact on society. If you want to find out more about the project, check out our website www.ars.electronica.art slash eu digital deal.